0: Just as there were redeemed people before Abraham and those people were not part of Israel, the redeemed today are not part of Israel. But all the redeemed of all ages are heirs of the spiritual aspect of the promise made to Abraham.
1: Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part four of The Church and God's Eternal Plan. We've been looking at the incredible work of God in history through Israel, both as a nation and as His chosen people, and also through the church There are some amazing similarities and promises that both Israel and the Church have in common. But as we began to examine last time, there are some main differences between the two. And today Tom will take us through the three primary and distinct differences between Israel and the Church. Distinct identities, distinct economies, and distinct promises. And you'll be reminded that while these distinctions exist, God's people still enjoy His daily faithfulness and His eternal promises. Let's join our teacher right now here on The Word Unleashed.
0: When the harvest time approached, He sent His slaves to the vine growers to receive His produce. The vine growers took His slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Again, He sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. You immediately make the connection here. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Now, obviously, the vineyard here is Israel. These slaves that are sent are the Old Testament prophets that were abused by the people of God. The Old Testament people of God, Israel. And eventually God sent His Son. Jesus is, of course, prophesying what will happen to Him at the end of His ministry. Verse 41, they said to Him, not yet making the connection. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. They were prophesying against themselves. These other vine growers, that is an allusion to the church, to Gentiles. There's a transition in God's program. And he goes on to describe that he himself is being rejected by them. Verse 43, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, now he applies it, and given to a people producing, literally to a nation, producing the fruit of it. Verse 45, they got it. The chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables. They understood he was speaking about them. They sought to seize him. They feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. So Jesus tells the Jewish leaders that there's a transition coming. The vineyard is going to be rented out to other vine growers. That is a reference to the transition to the church. You begin chapter 22 and you see a similar illustration. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. And they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fatted livestock are all butchered. Everything's ready. Come to the wedding feast. Free food. Wedding feasts typically could last anywhere from several days to as much as a week. He's saying, Come to the wedding feast. And they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. The rest seized his slaves. So what you have here is some apathy, just... They don't care. They go about their business. And some absolute antipathy to God and His plan. The rest seized his slaves and treated, mistreated them and killed them. That's, again, a reference to the Old Testament prophets. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers, and this gets very personal, and set their city on fire. This is a reference, a prophecy of Christ to the coming destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Then he said to his slaves, verse 8, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. And then, of course, there's the illustration of the man who refused to take... All of them who came to the wedding were offered wedding clothes, a wedding robe, that was traditional. None of them had one, so this was an affront. This man who didn't have a wedding gown, he he was absolutely refusing to accept what the master and the king was offering. Again, a picture of the fact that somebody wanted to get in with their own merits. They wanted to be there because they deserved to be there rather than taking the wedding robe representing, of course, as we know, the great robe of the righteousness of Christ. The king said to his servants, verse 13, bind him hand and foot and throw him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, speaking of the general call of the gospel, but few are chosen. Only those who are chosen will respond, even as we've looked at the effectual call in the past. So Jesus let us know in his ministry that a change was coming. You see it again in Romans 11. We could spend a lot of time in Romans 11, but we're not going to do that. I'm just going to give you a real brief summary. This is a watershed passage. It has convinced even hardcore covenantalists that there is some kind of future for ethnic Israel. John Murray, for example, writes, Paul envisions a restoration of Israel as a people to God's covenant favor and blessing. In Romans 11, this viewpoint is inescapable. End quote. Amen. Romans 9 through 11 is about Israel and its relationship to the righteousness of God. Paul tells us that Israel set out to develop its own righteousness. It didn't understand God's righteousness, and therefore it has refused his offer of the gift of righteousness. But there's still a future. Notice how Paul defines Israel at the beginning of this passage Romans chapter 9. I read these verses just a few minutes ago. When he's talking about Israel in this section, he's talking about those who are his kinsmen according to the flesh, verse 3, Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises, whose are the fathers, from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, blessed forever. You get the idea. He's talking about Jewish people. So when he comes to chapter 11... He wants us to know in in verse 1 through verse 10 that while Israel as a whole has not embraced her Messiah, there is a remnant of ethnic Israel that are being saved, just as there was a remnant in the time of Elijah, verses 2 and 3. When you come to verse 11 down through verse 16, we learn that Israel's failure was for the spiritual benefit of all of us. And he explains exactly how that happens. Verse 11, notice Israel stumbled. Verse 12, their failure resulted in riches for us. Verse 17, there was this rich root of an olive tree, probably a reference to Abraham or to the promise made to Abraham, and the branches were broken off. That's the Jews. They no longer could partake of that promise made to Abraham And instead, wild olive branches, verse 17 says, were grafted in. That's us, folks, Gentiles. We've been grafted in to receive the promises made to Abraham. Verse 25, he says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, Romans, Gentiles, that a partial partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. He's saying, listen, there is a change that has occurred. And don't misunderstand it and think God has rejected His people because of it. It's that big a change that you might conclude that God has absolutely once and for all rejected His people. He begins verse 1 of chapter 11, Don't even think that may it never be and notice verse 26 he says all israel will be saved there's still a time coming when god will deal with this people we'll talk more about that in coming weeks so you see that in romans 11 it's clear that a shift in god's program occurred a partial happen, hardening rather has happened to israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. You see the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 2. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 14, the end of verse 14 says, You're enduring the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. These are the Jews now he's talking about. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Obviously, this is a different mode of operation by God toward Israel than you see in the Old Testament. There's a change that's occurring. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter takes that great reference in Exodus 19, given to the people of God at Sinai, given to Israel at Sinai, and he says, okay, they have been set aside from this great mission purpose. You now, church, to whom he's writing, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you were... Once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Folks, just as there were redeemed people before Abraham, and those people were not part of Israel, the redeemed today are not part of Israel. But all the redeemed of all ages are heirs of the spiritual aspect of the promise made to Abraham. Robert Sosi in his excellent book, The Case for Progressive Dispensationalism, writes, Believing Israel and the members of the church are one in their participation in the salvation of the new covenant. They are equally and together the people of God. Their difference lies not on the spiritual plane, but in their specific identity and corresponding function in God's kingdom program. Exactly right. They merely have served in God's purposes different time periods and different purposes. And that brings us to the third and final distinction of Old Testament Israel from the church. They are different in their distinct promises. Now, let me just say first that the church in Israel share many promises. For example, the Abrahamic covenant. Over and over again, we're told, like in Ephesians 3.6, we are fellow heirs with them. I love Galatians three twenty nine. In fact, just look at it. Galatians three twenty nine, Paul says at the end of that chapter, if you belong to Christ, okay? If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. You get in on the spiritual aspect of the Abrahamic covenant if you belong to Christ. So we share that those promises. We also share the New Covenant promises. In Jeremiah 31, God says, I'm going to make a New Covenant with Israel and Judah. But when we come to the New Testament, Jesus says He's dying to effect the New Covenant. Paul calls himself a minister of the New Covenant in 2 Corinthians 3. And Hebrews 12 tells us that we have come to benefit from and participate in that New Covenant. So there are a lot of promises that we share. But there are promises distinctly made to Israel, which will be fulfilled in the future. There are, in fact, distinct promises to Israel. I'm not going to deal with this in great detail because we're going to get there when we get to prophecy in a few months or years, as the Lord chooses. Or maybe I shouldn't blame that on the Lord. Um, But there are two I want to highlight briefly for you. Here are two very distinct promises Israel has from us. First of all, a future restoration to an earthly land, to the land God promised them. You remember in Genesis 17, God reiterated the covenant to Abraham, and He says, I am going to give to you and your descendants after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. Now, covenantalists read a verse like that, and they would say this, that Israel forfeited these promises because of her unfaithfulness to God. And so now, the church receives these land promises, and it's really a reference to heaven. They would cite a verse like, um, Hebrews 11, 16, speaking of Abraham and those along with him, they desired a better country, not an earthly one, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. In other words, Abraham wasn't really concerned about Canaan. Well, obviously, there's an element of truth to their argument. If you've ever been to Israel, you can understand why Abraham would prefer heaven to that. But here's a serious problem for the covenantalist. Land is included in the New Covenant promises to Israel. Turn with me briefly to Ezekiel 36. This is a promise that's still future, that God hasn't fulfilled to Israel. We participate in this New Covenant, but it's not exhausted in us as the church. And it's pretty clear when you look at the language of Ezekiel 36. It includes land. Land. In verse 28, well, let's go back up a couple of verses. In verse 24, God says, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a spirit, my new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes and you will be careful to observe My ordinances. All of those things we're told that we will benefit from and do benefit from now by the writer of Hebrews. But notice he goes on. Verse 28, You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. Now folks, that is not heaven. So that you will be My people and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness and... And I will call for the grain and multiply it. And I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree, the produce of the field, so that you will not receive again the disgrace of the famine among the nations. And on and on he goes, down through verse 38. Verse 35, they will say, this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden. He wouldn't say that of heaven. They would never say heaven was a desolate land that has now become like the Garden of Eden. He's talking about... The land of Canaan. The land promised in Genesis 12 and 17 and every time that, new, that Abrahamic covenant is repeated. and He goes on to say, the waste, desolate and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. And he says, I'm going to do this because I am the Lord. So land is included in the new covenant promises to Israel. A future restoration is coming. Again, we'll look at this in more detail when we get to prophecy. A second thing that is distinct to Israel is they maintain a distinct promise of a future restoration to the land and a leading role in an earthly kingdom. Now, I don't know all that that's going to be, and in fact, I'm, I'll still be working that out when we get to eschatology. I'm going to wait to prove to you the existence of the millennium, which can very well be proven, uh, But I'm not going to do that right now. We're going to just assume that. But what is clear is that redeemed ethnic Israel will play a significant role. And there are a number of passages in the Old Testament to point that out. Jeremiah 3.17, at that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord and all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem for the name of the Lord, nor will they walk anymore after the stubbornness of their evil heart. In Isaiah chapter 60, Verses 14 to 21, you see the same sort of reference to the nations looking to Israel and streaming into Israel in a time of a renewed earth. You say, well, how can we be so similar and Israel have a distinct role as a nation in the millennium? I don't know that I can fully explain that to you except to say this. Spiritual equality does not mean identical roles and function take for example galatians 3:28 it says there is neither jew nor greek there is neither slave nor free there is neither male nor female you are all one in christ jesus folks males and females are spiritually equal now and yet we have different roles and functions in the purpose of god Women cannot serve as elders in the church, for example. I think the same principle applies to the future role of Israel. It's not that Israel is going to be some earthly nation, entirely different and distinct and separate from us in the sense of not enjoying the same spiritual benefits and having the same worship of Christ and all of those things. I think there's going to be great similarity, more similarity than distinction. But it does appear from the body of Scripture that she will have a distinct role separate from the role that we Gentiles will have in the purpose of God. The spiritual equality between Jews and Gentiles does not mean that redeemed Jews cannot, in the purposes of God, serve a distinct purpose. So while there are many similarities, there are at least these three key differences. Distinct identities, distinct economies and distinct promises. Now, I do want to ask a key question. Why does this matter? As I said at the beginning, it matters because it mattered enough to God to reveal it to us. 2 Timothy 3.16 hasn't changed. All Scripture is what? Inspired by God and is profitable. Even those things that don't immediately appear to be profitable or applicable. But I think there is a great application And I'll give it to you as we close tonight. I think all of this matters, that there is a distinction, that there are still promises to be fulfilled to Israel because it guarantees that God will fulfill His promises to us. Listen, God chose the physical descendants of Abraham as the special objects of His care and affection. If their sin, if their rejection... Could change God's mind about them and cause Him to rescind His promises. And what's to say that God couldn't change His mind about us? But the fact that His promises remain intact prove His faithfulness to us. Turn to Romans 11 one last time as we close. Romans 11. Paul gives us this application. I think. Romans chapter 11. Verses 1 and 2, he says, I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite. So here he's talking very directly and specifically about his ethnicity, about his relationship to Abraham as a Jewish person. Verse 2, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. There's that great word that describes not just knowing something ahead of time, It's a word that is an intimate word of choice and of love, of setting your love on someone, of determining to have a relationship with someone. God hasn't rejected His people whom He determined to have love for and a relationship with, has He? And then notice verse 28. From the standpoint of the gospel, they, that is, the Jewish people are enemies for your sake, But from the standpoint of God's choice, God's choice of them, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. And I love this, verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Folks, the fact I believe that there's a future yet for Israel, not as some would have us believe totally distinct from us, but promises yet to be fulfilled all Israel will be saved, Zechariah tells us. They'll look on Him whom they pierced and mourn for Him as an only son, and a fountain of cleansing will be opened. And they will play a role, a function of some kind in a future earthly kingdom. The fact that God has not completely set them aside and done away with those promises He made is our guarantee, just as Paul says here, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That means God's calling of you. That effectual call when He drew you to Himself, when He foreknew you and determined to set His love upon you, when He determined to call you to Himself, that too is irrevocable.
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with Part 4 of The Church and God's Eternal Plan. Join us next time for Part 5. And friend, join Tom Pennington in Southlake, Texas, February 18th through the 20th for the 2022 Countryside Bible Church Conference, Our Glorious Hope. Tom welcomes Steve Lawson, H.B. Charles, Philip DeCourcy, and more to remind you of the eternal hope of heaven that is ours in Christ and to spur you on to live in light of that reality today. Visit thewordunleashed.org for more information and registration links to the conference. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org.